Welcome everyone and hello. Welcome to another episode of the Varying Viewpoints podcast sponsored by the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity and Justice. I'm Mary Beth Gassman and I'm going to be your host for today. I'm really excited because we're here to talk about exploring the Carnegie elective classification for community engagement and its impact on community engagement in higher education. Have two really wonderful guests, really informative guests uh, with me today, Paul Lemehu, who is the Senior Advisor to the President at the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, and Maricel Morales, who is the Executive Director of the Carnegie Elective Classifications at the American Council on Education. So welcome to you both. Happy to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks, Mary Beth. Thank you. Um, we are going to start off with some questions uh, and lots and lots of questions today, hoping to fill in our audience on um, the Carnegie elective around uh, community engagement. So Paul, I'll start with you. Um, why were the elective classifications created by the Carnegie Foundation and what significance do they have in higher education? Yeah, to, to really appreciate them, I think we need to go back to the beginning, even before the elective classifications, to when the classification system itself was created and why. Um, the Carnegie classifications are coming up upon their 50th anniversary, um, something of a landmark time for them as they rethink and reimagine their place in the higher education sector. Um, and back at the very beginning, the classifications were created to cluster together like institutions for a variety of reasons, um, mostly good reasons, so that they could learn from each other, uh, so that people who were interested in doing research in higher education could have a dependable, uh, independent, and reasonably consistently applied uh, categorization of institutions. If you happen to be a researcher and you were interested in community colleges, it's really helpful to have a definitive list of just what, which the, which institutions are the community colleges, for example. And it also is useful to policymakers interested in understanding the sector and targeting policies appropriately, and even those who distribute resources uh, and provide supports within the sector if they want to target um, minority serving institutions or uh, anything of the sort. It's useful to have an independent, a rigorous uh, classification system in place because absent that, everybody with that interest would have to reinvent it for themselves. And if that happened, I sort of predict two things at least would also occur. One is it would probably be different from case to case to case. Uh, it would probably be, a good euphemism might be uneven as to how well it was done or how it was done generally. And so as a result, you get chaos as opposed to knowledge building, or you get chaos as opposed to good learning uh, at the institutional level. Um, so that was the first purpose. And probably most people know and understand because they've been touched by in one way or another, the general classification, the basic classification, it's the one that says uh, yours is a uh, comprehensive liberal arts school or 
yours is a master's conferring uh, institution or yours is a research institution, an R1 or an R2 perhaps. Well, some years in, uh, after some considerable influence, both good and bad, uh, there was thought to be a real need to do two things. One was to focus on particular aspects of institutions' mission, particular aspects of institutions' roles in society. And the other, which the Carnegie Foundation sought to do with the same brushstroke, if you will, to allow institutions to be recognized for extraordinary commitment to, investment in, and accomplishment at some particular aspect of its role and contribution to society, to provide an independent assessment and warranting of an institution's extraordinary commitment to investment in and accomplishment at some aspect of its public purpose, if you will. This would allow institutions to be and remain diverse. The higher education sector is incredibly diverse, and that's a real strength of the sector, and it's a real benefit to America to be diverse in structure, in purpose, in contribution. Um, but here you had this uh, classification system that was unable to honor and recognize that diversity. So the elective classifications were created to offer an additional set of classifications for those who wanted to pursue it of their own volition, so as to be recognized for an extraordinary uh, investment in an extraordinary accomplishment at some aspect of its public purpose. And the very first of these was the elective classifications for community engagement. It was a very wise decision to start in that area for a number of reasons, which I hope we'll explore. Um, and it has pro proven to be quite beneficial in the sector in allowing institutions to learn from each other, with each other, and through each other, uh, how to strengthen their contribution to community locally, regionally, and beyond um, by establishing that sort of that sort of classification that that clusters like institutions together. In this case, institutions that have made extraordinary investments in community engagement and service to the community. Thank you. Thank you so much. And all of what you are uh, saying reminds me a lot about of um, the work that minority serving institutions do. So I'm so glad that we're um, going to be talking specifically about how uh, MSIs can uh, engage with this elective as well. So thank you. Um, Marisol, why do you believe that the community engagement elective has had such uh, longevity, and what do you believe are the contributions to institutional transformation? Yeah, Mary Beth, thanks for the question. Um, I mean, I think part of the longevity of the community engagement elective classification is its focus on um, it being an institutional self-study tool. So the idea of sort of collecting some baseline data around, um, you know, set standard to an extent that I think the definition has helped in terms of giving us common language in, in the field. Um, but it also helps institutions think about how they do their work better. So really this idea 
institutional transformation, continuous improvement. Uh, it's a aspect of, you know, an institution's identity. So those institutions who are interested in claiming this as part of their identity, um, it's a tool for, for doing that that's um, recognized and, and run by an external uh, well-known, um, you know, entity. Um, again, this institutional self-study aspect of it. So, you know, thinking about how do you uh, promote pro promising practices um, and share that information uh, across campus, bring disparate parts of the institution together, gives us a tool to do that. Um, it fulfills kind of, um, you know, an aspect of accountability, right? Uh, as to whether an institution is fulfilling its mission, um, it provides legitimacy, public rec recognition and visibility. Um, I think, you know, more than anything, it serves as a catalyst for for uh, change. So as we're thinking about institutional alignment with, um, you know, community engagement standards and has as they've changed over the years, it gives uh, an institution, the folks who care about this, an opportunity to really push forward that change and align it to other sort of institutional priorities like strategic plans, uh, accreditation, uh, civic action plans, those things that really uh, focus on uh, enhancement and improvement. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I have to say, um, for those people listening, we have a wonderful partnership um, with uh, ACE and Carnegie around engaging minority serving institutions. And one of the things that I've really loved about the partnership is just getting to learn about um, kind of what happens as a result of participating in these electives and talking to people who have really um, been able to find out a lot more about their institutions through engaging with the elective. So uh, I appreciate you saying that, Medisal. Um, Paul, so um, we hear that the foundation is exploring the development of an indigenous serving classification. Can you tell us a little bit more about those and what do you think their um, contributions can be to minority serving institutions and higher education as a whole? You bet. Um, and first off, in the matter of transparency and full disclosure, I should say as someone who was raised uh, in Hawaii, uh, the thought of an indigenous serving institutional classification is something of a personal passion of mine. Mm -hmm. So thank you. You may hear that. Yeah. Um, I think what's important about it, well, first of all, a little bit of background. The, the, as the foundation comes up to its 50th anniversary, uh, part of our rethink, our reimagining of the classifications generally has included a commitment to an expansion of the available uh, elective classifications. Uh, and to do that, we are exploring through feasibility studies the advisability of a small set, each of a small set of possible candidates. One of them is a classification recognizing institutions as indigenous serving. Um, I think it's important to appreciate a couple of things that are true of all of the classification, the elective classifications. One is that it's conferred at the institutional level you heard that in my earlier definition. It recognizes an institutional commitment, investment, and accomplishment. Um, it's not the accreditation of an individual program. We love good programs, and we appreciate them, we value them, we respect them, 
but we also encourage if you want to get recognition for an individual program, that's an accreditation problem uh, process, and there are others who do that. This is an institutional investment and commitment. And what it says is that if you are a member of this community, if you are a student here, if you are a faculty member here, um, if you are in any way associated with this community, your experience of this institution is shaped by its commitment to, in this case, indigenous peoples and the service in service of indigenous peoples. So you would come onto our campus and no matter what you were here to do, no matter what you were majoring in, pre-law, pre-med, uh, 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 literature, or whatever, um, your experience of this institution is influenced by the fact that we are an indigenous serving institution. And that's really quite extraordinary. I think a second benefit or a second feature of an elective classification focused on indigenous serving is to keep in mind that it is not just for those few whose mission and reason for being is focused on indigenous peoples, uh, uh, tribal colleges and universities, for example. Uh, one can readily appreciate, and there is indeed already an official listing of TCUs, um, and one can readily appreciate that tribal colleges and universities are, by their very definition and existence, uh, indigenous serving. This is about warranting both those institutions, but also challenging uh, the University of Minnesota, that given its, its, its historical place in, American, in the American story and its geographical place in America, um, it has an indigenous serving population, all, an indigenous population all around it. And being indigenous serving is nothing but right for it as part of its mission and as part of its makeup. So what, you, what we see and what we hope for is to challenge the sector broadly. Um, the truth of the matter is I can't imagine any place in America where you could go, but what there's an indigenous population around you uh, and an indigenous population that has made sacrifice so that you can even exist and being recognized and doing the stuff that gets you recognized as an indigenous serving is just one small place to claim the rightful mission of, oh, say, a land-grant university. Um, it's called land-grant, after all. It's hard not to hear that and wonder how it could possibly be that you would not be indigenous serving, for example. But we intend to have very high standards and we intend to enforce those standards and by doing so, challenge the sector to claim uh, a part of its mission, which has been too long ignored, uh, but very, very necessary. Wow, uh, thank you. And I appreciate um, the personal nature and the, and the passion that came through. Um, and I, I, I'm really excited to learn about that. I think it's just terrific that that's happening. So thank you for sharing. Um, Marisol, what are some of the changes that we can expect for the 2026 cycle of the community engagement elective? Well, um, I mean, I think, let me uh, start off with some of the changes that we've kind of already made, which sort of led us to um, the changes that we're beginning to, to explore. 
So um, when we came on and moved over to uh, ACE, we did some kind of a, some of our own research and looking at the 352 classified campuses and, you know, thinking about what was that landscape, right? What did that landscape look like? We knew how many publics and privates, but we didn't really break it down in terms of the different types of institutions. As, as we uncovered our um, 2020 application cycle data, we realized that, um, you know, overall we had um, about a 61% attainment rate of all different types of institutions for the elective classifications. That's good, right? Um, It says that it's difficult but doable. Um, But when we began to look at different types of institution types, we realized that that 61% didn't really match up. So um, for HBCUs, we only had 25% that were classified. For our Hispanic-serving institutions, 48%, and then community colleges, about 21%. Um, and we saw lower participation rates amongst those different types of institutions. So part of what we've uh, been doing and also the sort of impetus for this partnership is you know, being able to think about how do we um, do more direct and targeted outreach and support for um, these campuses that we would like to see more representation of um, within the classified campuses. So HPCUs, other MSIs, community colleges. Um, and then how do we um, also use this as an opportunity to center those voices in the revision process that we're doing currently around the 2026 application? So we have a small committee uh, working this summer to revamp the application. Um, and that committee is made up of folks from HBCUs, community colleges, MSIs. Um, really looking at the questions that we ask, um, you know, identifying which ones um, apply and maybe don't, which ones might be redundant, um, which ones kind of speak the language that, um, right, or um, would be able to capture the stories that are most relevant to these different types of institutions. And then really thinking about the way that we um, rewrite the application with the campus in mind. I think some of the uh, feedback that we received as we sort of had conversations in the field um, and really um, sort of opened the invitation for for, uh, critical feedback um, as a way for our own continuous improvement was um, that there was a lot of redundancy, um, that it felt like the application was geared towards the reviewers and not the, the campuses. Um, and that they didn't always have the opportunity within sort of the limitations of the space to, t- to sort of share the whole story. So some of the work that we're doing is is around that, right, form and structure. Um, the other piece is writing specific guidebooks for different types of institutions um, to help them think about the way that they would answer these questions from uh, based on their institution type. So we'll be working on that as well. In addition to that, we're going to be adding a section um, at, on democratic and civic engagement. It's imp- it's an important part of our uh, community engagement definition, but has sort of been lightly scattered throughout the application. So we're bringing it uh, forward with more intentionality in, in the upcoming um, classification. The other piece that I will say sort of on the back end is that uh, for this round, um, we piloted um, sort of two things. One is a a broader peer review process. So we did a broad call to the field and invited field leaders to apply to serve as reviewers. And so we have, um, you know, the three tier review process. Um, Tier one is made up of groups of three 
folks that um, evaluate seven to 10 applications. Um, and we're committed to having, if, uh, if, if there is a review team that's reviewing uh, HBCU or HSI or community college, there will be someone on that review team that has experience at those types of institutions. Um, we, we ask that um, the reviewers um, write specific notes and feedback directed towards the campus. So we can, our goal is to provide uh, individualized feedback to each campus based on reviewer notes. And then um, if those reviewers can't come to consensus on whether a campus should be classified or not classified, it goes to our tier two reviewers who have been folks, who are folks who have historically reviewed the applications. So they have deep uh, knowledge and experience with reviewing the Carnegie elective classification applications. Um, and they'll make a recommendation as to whether campus is classified or not. And then the staff um, reviews all uh, applications and recommendations for uh, classification. Um, and so we've tried to do a lot both in terms of our own infrastructure um, and, and policies um, that are uh, center uh, various types of institutions, right? One of the key things we say is um, this application is meant to respect the diversity of institutions, um, but we didn't really have a lot of practices in place that sort of did that intentionally. And so we've tried to do those tried to do the intentional outreach. Um, last year, we had a, um, a training that was specifically geared to, to HBCUs that we held at Stillman College. Um, and we're continuing to um, create space and listen to the ways that we can enhance the application to be more reflective of the diversity of institutions we have in the US higher education landscape. Thank you, thank you. That's all really good to hear, and I'm uh, I'm hoping that more MSIs will apply. Um, so another question I wanted to ask you is, why do you think it's important for MSIs to participate in the elective, and what benefit can it have from for them? I know you talked about some of the general benefits earlier, but um, are there specific benefits you think that MSIs could really? Um, learn from, engage in, uh, benefit from? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things. One is that we know that, you know, the sort of important nature that um, community engagement has as a high impact practice, especially in uh, serving a diverse student body. So I think, you know, the first thing is that we know that this is proven results for our minoritized students. Um, and so the ways that we can enhance our practice, whether they're PWIs or uh, minority serving institutions will help us uh, not only sort of uh, create access for minoritized students, but um, also make sure that they're supported along their educational pathway and that, that they graduate. So um, part of it is, is the impact that it has in contributing to completion rates. Um, the other piece is that, you know, we know many of these institutions uh, were developed um, and have historically done this work, but not sort of had an opportunity to kind of showcase that. And, um, you know, we want this to be an opportunity for them um, to showcase that and to also have us have conversations about how do we do community engagement better? How do we support community engagement that, um, is meaningful, particularly for students of color at our institutions, right? So the the idea of um, 
using this as an institutional self-study tool also allows us to have those conversations on campus about how we're engaging with our students, how we're engaging with the communities that our students come from, that we're often sending our, our students to. Um, and then thinking about what kind of resources are needed to do this and do this well. You know, as Paul um, you know, alluded to, this is part of higher education's public purpose. How do we help these institutions um, really step into that in a way that is, um, you know, beneficial both internally and externally and provides um, I think pathways for recognition. The other thing I would say is that we also know from the data that there are more female um, faculty of color that are doing this work, um, but often don't have um, the tools within their institutions to be recognized for this, right? It's something that's meaningful for them that they do because of the impact um, that it has on the students, but also maybe connections to their own personal um, you know, values. And, um, one of the things that I believe that our elective classification has done has really been to push the needle on recognition of community-engaged scholarship, inclusive scholarship in the tenure and promotion process. And so um, that helps to not only recruit um, diverse faculty, uh, but uh, retain them. And in a period where we have increasing numbers of uh, students of color, um, entering our institutions, we also need uh, faculty representation. So tools to help with that, um, I think are important for institutions to, to consider. Um, and I think with the community colleges, you know, they are um, really serving a broad sector and they are serving a set of students that have, um, you know, competing challenges in terms of their time or, um, you know, competing pressures in terms of their time. And so the ways that they've figured out how to create meaningful community engagement experiences for students who are parents or working full-time and coming back, um, I think is important lesson for all of us to, to sort of pay attention to and learn um, as we see that happening uh, with our students at our four-year institutions. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was really, really good information. Uh, Paul, I wanted to ask you, what do you believe is uh, the future of uh, the elective classifications? And also, I'm just curious about Carnegie's hope for higher education at, you know, this really critical time for higher education. Yeah, that's a very important, very important question. Um, I guess what I would say is we are imagining uh, at, at this moment, the expansion and diversification of the ways in which institutions of higher education can be recognized, diverse missions, diverse social structures and social organizations, structural organizations, um, varied work to do, and thankfully, varied forms of institutional responses. But as I said at the very beginning, historically, we've spoken of higher education as though, we're a mono, as though it were a monolith. And some of what's happening here is for the express purpose of shining a spotlight on some of that variability in mission, in purpose, and in success in addressing those unique missions and purposes. Uh, if they aren't properly recognized, properly honored, there can be a lack of drive 
to address them. Those who hold the elective classifications, those institutions which are currently hold either the um, elective classification for community engagement or the other one which does currently exist, which is leadership for public purpose, tend to speak of their elective classification often and they speak of it with pride. It obviously is something in their view worth pursuing. Marisol has a phrase that she uses, which I think is quite apt, that the prize is the process. Uh, what you go through in order to become recognized, in order to hold the classification, is a growth and learning experience unto itself. And I do think that that is absolutely true. But the classifications also exist so that by clustering extraordinary institutions together, we can fulfill a learning strategy which underlies all of the classifications, which is that we learn best with others who are like us and from others who are not like us. In other words, when we get together uh, uh, with like institutions, we can look at what they are doing and saying that could work here because we serve a very similar population or because we are we exist in a very similar geographic or policy setting. Um, but we also learn from knowing who it is who's doing extraordinary work by being not like us, by being innovative in certain ways, by doing and trying new things. So we intend to expand the array of available elective classifications and in doing so, we'll be able to address more realistically and more fully that vision of learning with people or with institutions like us and from institutions that are different from us. Um, examples, right now, two, two elective classifications exist and are operational, community engagement and leadership for public purpose, which is located at the Door Institute at Rice University. Um, we are contemplating a small set uh, of additional classifications. Uh, some, perhaps not all, but some of them are in line for the close future. They include things like sustainability, like indigenous serving institutions, like uh, community, I'm sorry, like uh, military connected or justice impacted students service of. Uh, and you could imagine a varied set of classifications like that in a world in which holding the classification is something to be very, very proud of and actually stimulates growth and learning within the sector. And in doing so, both recognize and support a much, very, much more varied vision of the higher education sector and its role in and contribution to society. This is just Carnegie's way and this is just the classification's way of reflecting those insights sort of into the sector and what serves it best. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate all that. Um, so that is my, uh, the last question that I have for both of you, but I'm wondering if there are any last things that you'd like to share with our listeners, uh, anything from either of you that you think would be helpful. Yeah, I would just encourage folks to join ACE Engage as a way to find out what's going on um, as uh, campuses are preparing. We've got um, 
a whole set of webinars and drop-in sessions, uh, Q&A. We're trying to do as much capacity building and support for institutions who are intending it to apply in 2026. Um, and so we encourage folks to join AC Engage to find out and keep in, um, kind of up to date on the things that we are doing. Um, you know, I know from personal experience how stressful um, doing this application can be, but it is totally worth the, the process of it. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that we're committed to um, is uh, making sure that campuses feel supported as they move through the process. We have a wonderful new um, director of the community engagement uh, elective classification, Cami Jones, who joined our team um, this summer and um, has hit the ground running. And so I would really uh, encourage folks to reach out to, to Cami, check out our website, and know that we're here for campuses as they um, sort of embark on this, this process. Um, I think lastly is that, um, you know, we really want to see the number of institutions participating, especially um, those who are um, designated as H um, MSIs and community colleges. And so, um, you know, we hope that, um, you know, if there are any questions that you would reach out, we're happy to speak to your teams and um, provide any additional support um, that folks may need as they're um, considering applying for this. Um, the application will be released at late January of 2024, uh, and campuses um, will have about a year and a half to um, submit their application. Thank you. Thank you. Paul, what about you? Any any last things? Yes, very, very quickly. Um, this is my echoing of the very sentiment that Marisol just shared, which is to say, please reach out to me at the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching with any thoughts or reflections, you know, in order for this effort to succeed, we recognize that we have much to learn from others. It would be a, a real exercise in arrogance to presume that we have all of the knowledge we need and, 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 and know what's best for the field. I've had the very good experience over the last several months to be in conversation with folks at the University of Montana, for example, where under the leadership of President Bodnar, extraordinary things are happening in the area of indigenous serving, uh, uh, fulfillment of an indigenous serving mission. And from them, I've learned much, which has been very, very encouraging and sustaining of the potential of an indigenous serving classification. But we can't do do it ourselves. We ought not to even think that that's a possibility. It'll succeed only through the contributions of the many people around the country who uh, who, who whose lived experience um, is a signal of how important the work is. Uh, so you know, I just want to invite people to comment and or participate in what will be broad processes to develop new classifications, uh, whichever ones they may be interested in and whatever the focus may be, because only by doing so do they have a chance of being successful, accepted and influential, positively influential in the field. Thank you, thank you. I um, appreciate you both so much uh, for taking some time out of your schedule to be with us today. I know people will be really excited about this conversation. And uh, just thank you so much for joining our podcast today. 
It's been a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mary Beth. And to your team. It's a pleasure.